The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the professional coin grading service. Test your grading abilities and win prizes from June 6 to 8 at the Long Beach Expo. Visit PCGS.com to learn more. This week on the Coin Week podcast, dealer Doug Winter joins us to talk about the state of the classic U.S. gold market, why certain dealers don't carry inventory anymore, and what it was like for dealers to go head-to-head at auction versus the Pogues. We cover this and more next on the Coin Week Podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week Podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, it seems like we always find the right time to get together and talk. You know, there's always something going on in the rare coin market uh, when we get together. Uh, Doug, you sell in a specialty area that's always had a fairly strong following, and therefore I think it's more or less insulated from most of the downside that we witnessed after the 2014 coin market recession. So the market's now making gains again, and many of the declines that we saw during the dip are being erased uh, and I'm not just talking about, you know, crusty original gold or rare date gold. I'm talking about classic U.S. coin market overall. We are seeing it get really healthy right now. Uh, my, my take on the market for the past 6 to 12 months has definitely been greater strength than I anticipated. Part of it obviously has to do with the fact that the economy is pretty good right now and people, I think, are a little less hesitant to spend money on non-essential goods, uh, so that's that's always helpful when the market, or the, the market is certainly driven by the economy, and a, a, a decent economy or a good economy is helpful for the coin market. Uh, and I've I've noticed my business has been good, and most people that I talk to whose opinions that I respect and trust tell me that. Uh, sales have been good both on the wholesale and retail sides of the market. Explain for somebody who may not be a professional dealer or a, or a seasoned collector, what is the difference in the type of material that you see trading in the wholesale market as opposed to the types of coins you see offered for sale at retail? Well, from just a simplistic point of view, a whole, the wholesale market is dealers selling to other dealers. The retail market are, is dealers selling to collectors and end users and generally speaking wholesale transactions tend to contain slightly more mundane um, generic types of issues dealers like myself who have a good retail following generally don't need to sell coins in the wholesale market we're looking to sell coins to to end users to collectors it's something that i've done for, for years, um, mainly I want to sell my best coins to collectors because I like to get them back sometime down the road. And I have instances where I've handled a coin four or five times in the 25 to 30 year window, uh, just continually buying and selling it. So um, just the, the simplistic definition is wholesale tends to be dealers selling to other dealers with sort of less interesting coins. Retail tends to be those same dealers selling to end-user collectors. And the, the, 
the dealers that specialize in wholesale generally are different than the dealers that specialize in retail sales. It seems like it would be an incredible built-in advantage if you uh, do have a retail following. More often than not, I think the price that dealers agree to pay for coins is where most of the margin resides. And uh, if you know the coins well and you, and you know what your buyers want and are willing to pay for these coins, uh, you can buy and sell at the right price and make that spread. Um, also, I think with a mature and loyal customer relationship, you will have better insight into where the desirable coins are being placed, uh, which in turn helps you when you're trying to fill a wish list or when collectors decide to pass on the opportunity to own these coins to somebody else. Uh, and I think this is, as a dealer, where you'd rather be uh, than being in a position of buying for inventory and having to guess about where the market is for a coin and uh, then recalibrate your buying based on cash flow and what's moving as opposed to, you know, just staying in your zone and, and, and working that area? It's definitely been something, like I said earlier in the conversation, it's been something that I've, ever since I sort of made the switch from being a primarily wholesale dealer to being more of a retail-oriented dealer, uh, I always, from, from the very beginning, wanted to sell my very nicest coins to good customers, knowing that I could get the coins back and... That's something that's been a big benefit for me over the years is I've sold really nice coins to collectors and they're coins that when, when Joe Collector calls me on the phone, I don't go, oh no, I'm getting these coins that I dumped on him back. It, it's usually, in fact, almost always really nice coins that I'm very happy to see back. I think one of the characteristics of a healthy coin market is when we start to see a break in the, what I call the collection straight to the auction house pipeline. Uh, and we've certainly seen this develop as a trend over the course of the past 10 or 15 years as the auction houses have developed incredible technology to sell coins in a very efficient manner. I know established dealers, you know, will take their shot at picking coins and, 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 and if they see a coin with a potential for upgrade, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll buy the coin. They'll try to, you know, put it through the system and, uh, see if they can see if they can maximize that coin. And once they have that coin maximized, then I see it goes straight back to the big auction catalog and they roll the dice. Uh, and it's really nothing more than numismatic day trading as far as I'm concerned. So do you see an opportunity in a healthier market for the industry to move away from this and get back to dealers dealing and building relationships with clients? Or do you think we're in a coin as commodities business and there's no getting around it? In an ideal business environment, that's that's certainly the strategy that you want. For somebody just starting out, I think it would be hard to to build a good inventory. For somebody that's been doing this for 30, 35 years like I have, it's it sort of is a built-in inventory. Um, being a retailer is difficult. It, it requires a level of patience that wholesalers don't necessarily have to have, a degree of interaction that wholesalers may not want to have, and it entails creating a website and building an infrastructure that is capital-intensive that not everybody wants or is able to afford. So um, 
creating a good retail company is is in my opinion it's a it's a sound business strategy in this market but it's not something that can be done easily even if the dealer is well capitalized it it definitely requires a level of business acumen and numismatic sophistication that a lot of dealers just don't have I think that's definitely the case and and I think on the dealer side the key to holding an inventory is having a sophisticated eye for quality and grade uh, and knowing the type of material that collectors want to buy. Uh, so instead of just picking up any old thing that comes across the counter, you're getting coins that have potential. It definitely just isn't as simple as putting together a website and throwing coins on your website and hoping people find them and buy them. Um, I mean, for me, it's years and years of trial and error to figure out what sells well, what sells quickly. And one of the things about retailing that's really changed in the last decade or two decades is just the the time frame that it used to be you would buy a coin and it generally was something you could buy on Tuesday and sell on Wednesday. Now you might have to regrade the coin. You might have to cross the coin over from one holder to another, send the coin to CAC, uh, send your coins out to be imaged, whatever. It. I, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day that if you're lucky, the coins that you buy at a show are ready to sell in 30 to 45 days. Um, that's an added level of expense that, that a lot of retailers don't factor when they're putting together a business plan. And it's, it's, it's a challenge to have inventory ready for sale and to have the capitalization that enables you to buy something and not blow it out as soon as you sell it. I know uh, from knowing you uh, over the course of the past several years that the way you approach coin shows is a little different from the dealer that you know might bring their best material to market and display at a sale. Uh, you aren't necessarily bringing or showing your best material at any even point. You are coming to source coins. You are there at a coin show to maintain and build relationships. Uh, and of course, you're doing lot viewing, certainly, you know. But when it comes to pieces that you'd buy, I'd assume that you'd have a pretty good idea when you get material in, uh, where the likely destination of that coin is going to be. So while you go to coin shows for reasons that might be different from, you know, many other dealers, I still think you'd have a valuable insight as to why it seems that the coin convention scene isn't in a good place right now. Because I think the delivery system of coin shows is very antiquated. And as much as the market has changed in the last five to ten years, the the, the old-fashioned <clears throat> four- or five-day coin show, with very few exceptions, has really jumped the shark. Um, I go to coin shows specifically to buy, um, also to interact with people and let them know that I'm still alive and kicking and still actively buying. But my delivery system for coins is not at a show. It's it's over my website. And I think as a as a... As a collector, you would much rather be able to find a coin on my website in the comfort of your own home, have it sent to you, and make a, a, 
a decision on the coin in your lighting, in your environment, not pressured in front of my table with me standing there going, well, are you buying it or not buying it? Um, coin shows... Coin shows haven't lost all their importance. I think there are still some coin shows that are very good and are very useful. But I think most dealers, especially most dealers that have been around for a long time, look at them as, I wouldn't say a necessary evil, but something that isn't necessarily the best use of their time. And certainly, for me to be out of my office for four or five days, the show's got to be really good or else I'm just not going to go. Um, it's just not a productive use of my time when I can be in my office interacting with customers just as well as I interact with them at a coin show. And to be honest with you, of, of my 10 biggest customers, probably six or seven of them have never been or never want to go to a coin show. It's not an environment that they're comfortable or, or eager to experience. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of jokingly said you can you could pull a coin dealer who hadn't been to anything any show in forty years and put him in a coin show and he'd he'd feel sort of comfortable at the coin show, whereas almost any other aspect of the coin market he'd be scratching his head like wow what what's going on? You know, the only thing that's really different from coin shows today versus coin shows of 15 or 20 years ago is there there's now a significant amount of wholesale business done before the shows at at, uh, at these at trading rooms that didn't necessarily occur before um, for a lot of shows the shows are almost over before they even begin where the the retail public who comes on a uh, comes to a show on a Thursday um, most of the good coins that transact at the coin show have already sold on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, and they're not even going to see the good coins. They certainly won't see the good coins in my case because I don't I don't display new purchases. I wait till I get home and am ready to sell them in at my terms um, on my website in with a CAC sticker or in a in a certain holder, it's um, the market is is certainly you can't judge the quality of the market based on coin shows because most coin shows are pretty crummy these days. Whereas, as we've already said, uh, the market I think seems pretty good now, and I think I think another thing that you and I, Charles, have had this conversation before. That if you go to a coin show, you think that everybody who buys coins is 70 years old. Uh, I sell a lot of coins to people in their 30s and 40s who love the coin market, love rare coins, love dealing with me on my site, but they don't have the time or the inclination to go to coin shows. And the demographics of the, the market is dramatically different than what you see at a coin show, dramatically different. I think especially coin shows are still the place to go. The EAC show that we just got back from was amazing. The New York International show is still the place to go if you collect world or ancient coins. Uh, and uh, like I said, I, we were just in Dayton, Ohio at the EAC. Uh, and you know, while I was there, I was sitting with a dealer and we were talking about who is active in the market today. 
uh, you know, and I pulled out my phone and I showed him the numbers of the people who come to our site and their ages. And, and he was astonished that so many people between the ages of 20 and 50 are interested in coins and actively participating in the hobby. Uh, and if all you do is the coin show circuit, you, you would not know this. You've shown that to me before. It's amazing the the percentage of the people that go on your website that are in their 20s and 30s versus the percentage of people in their 20s and 30s that go to coin shows. It's like two different galaxies. No, it's two different galaxies altogether. And to take it a step further, you know, last month we had a quarter million views on our YouTube channel, and these are 20, 30, 40, 50 year old coin enthusiasts. And I think you can look across the board at every channel we push content out of, and it's the same. But I just want to put the final nail in the coffin of the idea that young people don't care about coin collecting. And this has been the uh, boy who cried wolf made up crisis that has been dogging this hobby for years. And it's simply not true. And the thing I tell people who wonder, you know, who the next generation of dealers is going to be, I say, you know, when, when Q. David Bowers was 16 years old, he never asked anybody's permission to become one of his generation's great numismatists. He just got down to business and he did the work. And the generation that is coming into the fore right now isn't going to ask for permission either. So change to this market is happening. It's always happening. And there's no need to fear what the future of the coin market is going to be like because it's going to be what it is. One, one thing, Charles, that I've noticed also is that if you read numismatic literature from 75 to 100 years ago, there were people 100 years ago complaining that the, the hobby was full of old men and there would be no other, you know, no new people coming in. People always misread an organization or, or a profession because of, of their own prejudices. Um, yeah, seemingly the U.S. market has a lot of older people in it, um, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a, a ton of younger people. Um, social media has become very active with younger people with coins. And I, I have a feeling that over 50% of the, of the people in their 20s and 30s who are buying coins will never go to a traditional coin show. So I think what will have to happen to attract people like that to, to go to coin shows, the coin show as we know it will have to be reinvented. You know, I think it's inevitable. Uh, I, I talked to Kim Kick, uh, executive director at the ANA, about it. Uh, I do think that there's something magical about the ANA's annual convention. It's uh, to me, it's like an opportunity for collectors to experience a major coin show. Uh, you know, where many generations of collectors convene and share the hobby and their experiences with one another. And uh, you know, the educational exhibits are great. The seminars are generally very well done. Uh, so it's a great experience for me, you know, year after year, having gone to all these uh, conventions. I still love it. Uh, but I try to instill this fact uh, to Kim that the market is made up of classic coin collectors and modern coin collectors. Uh, many modern coin collectors tend to be younger, but not all. Uh, this is not an absolute. Um, young people, you know, collect classic coins, too. Uh, but I told her, I said, if you collect modern coins... There really is no reason for you to come to the ANA or any coin show because you aren't likely to find the things that you don't have. And so one of the things the American market is lacking is that numismatic trade show experience 
that collectors in Europe get with the World Money Fair, where all the mints, they show off their upcoming product lines. And I think if we did this in the States, this would get modern coin collectors interested in attending shows. But we don't really do it. What we have now is essentially, you know, a roving flea market environment with a major auction connected to it. Uh, you know, there's some great coins, don't get me wrong, but the presentation, the excitement, the buzz, the enthusiasm, it's just not there. But getting to your area specialty, you know, to me, the, the gold market's always been interesting because it has been in some respect gutted by the precious metals market when it peaked in 2010. Uh, and this is especially true for generics, uh, which have lost a tremendous amount of numismatic value. And recently, we've seen thousands of U.S. coins come to the country from South America, you know, and these are flooding the market. And these coins are typically, you know, coming here in high AU or slider grades. Uh, and since telemarketers are pushing brand new or recent vintage Gold Eagle bullion coins and other bullion items, classic gold has taken a real beating. But premium quality examples, I think uh, they remain scarce and premium quality scarce states even more so. And it doesn't seem like the ups and downs of the precious metals market has really dampened the overall enthusiasm that collectors have for better material. As uh, someone who deals in this better material, is now a time when nice coins are coming to the market or is it still difficult? for you to source nice coins? There's probably multiple answers to, to that or to those questions. So there have certainly the generic market has been just slaughtered in the last five years just because of gold being weak and a, a, a huge quantity of nice quality generics coming in from, from various overseas sources. It's also collector's taste have changed. Um, the, the desire to put together a basic 10 to 12 coin U.S. typeset in Min State 63 to Min State 65 seems to have just been obliterated. Um, nobody really wants to do that anymore. The market has become more sophisticated and people tend, there's so much more information out there about what's really rare. You don't need to trust your your dealer to tell you that a 57D quarter eagle is rare in Mint State. There's good objective information that proves that a coin like that is rare. Um, really good quality, interesting rare coins have proven to be really hard to find in the last few years. I, it's the biggest problem I have as a coin dealer is just replacing good coins when I sell them. It never ceases to amaze me when I get an interesting, good, specialized collection in how fast the coins sell and how hard it is for me to come up with replacement coins. It's, uh, it's as a dealer, it's heartening to see the level of demand, but it's frustrating for me to know how diminished the supply of really nice quality coins are. The coins that are coming in from overseas tend not to be smaller denomination coins and tend not to be much rarer dates. They tend to be primarily 10s and 20s, um, ranging from slightly better to better but not super rare dates. Um, 
it has created a really good opportunity. I've, I've talked to you before and shown you some of the type 1 20s. Um, that's uh, Liberty Head Double Eagles made from 1850 to 1866, uh, primarily from Philadelphia and San Francisco, are down 20 to 40% over their highs of a few years ago. And some of the coins that have come in from overseas are, are exquisite. Um, they're really, really nice coins that are very good values. And those have been fairly well absorbed by collectors. Um, but the coins that really have proven to be the most popular in, I'd say, the last, in, in the most recent generation of new collectors, people are looking for coins that are popular, that are pretty, that are historically significant, that are low mintage. People are collecting less by complete date and mint set and more by sort of sophisticated typeset collecting. So, you know, I told you before that people aren't putting together generic typesets where you have uh, a, a $3 gold piece in MS-63, a Type 2 gold dollar in 62, a 5 Indian in 64. Um, they're collecting, say, a Dahlonega set with all the main design elements of Dahlonega coins. Um, they're, they're collecting sort of specialized typesets, and coins like an 1838D half-eagle, which is a first-year of issue and a one-year type coin, are super, super popular with new collectors right now, whereas some of the better-date Delonica gold coins are probably a little more difficult to sell, although there still are people that, that collect Delonica half-eagles specifically by date. What do you think uh, this will mean long-term for the way these classic coins are marketed? Is there a long-term structural issue, or can collectors make a go-against-the-grain play and pick up generic classic coins? It really depends. I mean, something a, a coin that was formerly scarce, like an 1898S $20 gold piece in MS-64 or MS-65, I don't recommend a coin like that and never really have recommended a coin like that because I believe that there are probably not that many gems still in overseas sources, but there's a lot of coins in 63 and 64. But uh, a coin like an 1855 Philadelphia 20 in AU58 where the population may have gone from 40 to 60 or 40 to 80, I think there's enough new interest to absorb 40 new coins in the market. I don't think there's enough new interest to absorb 4,000 coins like there may be with the 98S20s. Um, people who are spending $2,500 to $5,000 per coin, and that's that's the typical coin that I sell is in, in the $2,500 to $7,500 range, they want something that's got demonstrable scarcity. Um, Rarity slash scarcity and availability of coins has become far more important to most collectors than it has been before. The market, when the market was more investor oriented 15 or 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, people wanted common coins and uncommon grades. Coins like that have sort of fallen out of favor. People now would rather have 
a really rare 20 lib in MS62 or MS63 than a fairly common date in MS66 or MS67. I don't see that changing either. I think that has something to do with people. Let's say you go back five years and uh, people look at the population reports and consider them to be relatively stable because at that point the services have been around for what, more than 25 years or so? And collector investors might look at a POP3 coin in a common date, say a MS67, and think, well, this is actually harder to get coin than, say, a tougher date that's scarcer in all grades, but maybe eight or 10 in the POP report are a, you know, a point or two below it. And that hasn't been the case, and maybe it won't be the case until all the material that exists has cycled through the system a couple of times and landed on that right grade for it. And maybe, you know, once that's done, you know, we could be at that point now or getting close to it. Um, then you might be able to say, yes, there are only three MS67s of this date. Uh, and that's with us knowing everything that there is out there and looking at the coins more than once. Uh, yeah, no, I agree totally. Um, I, I think at this point, we can make pretty good observations as to what's rare in terms of condition rarity and absolute rarity. And one of the things that I always tell people who are interested in buying higher-grade coins is pay attention to the grade below. Um, if if a coin has a population of two in MS67 but has 50 in MS66, that to me is a little bit of a red flag because a few of those MS66s can always magically become 67s at some point. If the coin in MS67 with a population of two has a population of only one or two in 66 and another maybe three or four in 65, that seems to me to be a coin that's fairly safe to buy because it's unlikely that more than a, a, a maybe one, possibly two of the lower grade coins might become a higher grade coin with enough resubmissions. And I don't think there's anything necessarily untoward about coins upgrading either. Uh, grading is a, is a skill, it's a subjective opinion, and uh, what we want as collectors has evolved greatly in the past 30 years. Uh, we've become better appreciators of certain types of features on vintage coins. And so the grading services are really just, you know, learning through experience what collectors want. Uh, the one area where I wish things would improve in terms of grading is the uh, concept of the uh, POP report. You know, uh, series specialists traditionally would study auctions and study known pieces and form a condition census based on opinion. And when you have a small, discrete population of a couple coins in the high end, these coins are known not necessarily by their grade, but by their personality. Uh, whereas when you have a bigger population, the coins aren't seen as individuals, but as nameless examples, you know, one of many in a high grade. So if I was a collector of condition rarities, I'd want to focus most of my attention on issues where coins are known not by their grade alone, but by their personality, their pedigree, their spot in the condition census as put together by those in the dealer or collector community that care about these things. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I mean, as somebody that is an aficionado of, of high-quality coins, to me, I would rather have as a as a collector, the James Stack 1857D Half Eagle that's, and I'm just arbitrarily inventing a grade here, is MS62 that is a known coin that's famous amongst the specialist community than 
kind of an unidentified 63 or 64 that may have just turned up out of the blue. Um, that's one thing that I think is lacking in a lot of series that aren't popular right now. I think if a series like, you know, if, if somebody created a database for Barber Dimes where you had the five or six best examples of every Barber Dime and you could identify specifically each coin by provenance, by color, by strike, um, creating a more familiar listing of good quality coins for a specific date, I think, is very helpful for for popularity. That's certainly, you know, you just having been at EAC, the the convention, you know, the EAC guys have got that down to a, a, a science where, you know, they know every dye variety of 1794 penny has a condition census going from, from top to bottom that's, in some cases, the coins have pedigrees going back to the 1860s, 1870s. Uh, with, I think that's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. At the EAC, they were uh, celebrating the life of Del Bland uh, this year, um, and Del did major work on condition census for early coppers. And as his family was in the process of disseminating his numismatic effects, they were able to donate boxes of binders of information that he gathered for his census work to the ANS. I saw a picture of all the stuff lined up in, in binders, and it looked like it was about 50 to 100 feet of shelf space. Well, I'm fairly certain, Doug, that you have a, an impressive file on coins that you have seen and which ones you like and in which order. Not quite equivalent to Del Bland's, but, but I do know for a lot of issues what you know, what, what's the best. And I, I've tried to share that in the books that I've written. Um, unfortunately, some of the coins have bounced around a little bit more um, or have changed appearance. And what may have made them special as a coin in a certain grade uh, gets lost when they get dipped or conserved. Um, but, but I do, I, I do try whenever possible and, if I have the ability to choose between a couple of high-grade coins, I would always select a coin with character that's nice and original and something with, uh, with, with a good provenance. You know, your comment put this in my head. When we talk about coins with individual personalities, I find that something happens when someone assembles a collection of primarily coins like this. I think... Every coin collection takes on a personality of its own, but when a certain type of coin collection is assembled with these coins of personality, then I think it becomes something historic and important, and it becomes really a joy to observe. Uh, I totally agree with you. That's why there's, you know, there's there's only a handful of really truly great coin collections, and um, you 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 definitely hit a good point where some where a collection that's full of great coins really takes on a life and makes it, it makes it special based on the quantity of quality coins if that makes sense where you you even having a collection with 30 Dahlonega half eagles where 25 of them are great coins and five of them are just okay coins. 
the five okay coins become kind of better than okay because they get over they get they get carried by the twenty five great coins um, unfortunately, fewer and fewer people are building what I would call really great sets um, they people tend to not have the patience to put together a great set it's something that requires depending on what you choose it requires a pretty extensive degree of patience and it also it requires a lot of luck i mean a lot of the really good collections i've put together have been where somebody's been an active buyer and another great collection comes available and they're able to pick five or six coins at a time from another great collection to add to their collection. So their collection becomes sort of a compendium of other collections that have come before it where they're able to pick out three, four, five, six coins that are meaningful from somebody else's collection. Well, to give people an idea of how difficult it is to do what we're talking about, let's take that 1857D that we uh, brought up earlier. I want to put together a great set, and I want you to get me a great 57D. What is your process to make this happen? Right. Yeah. So that well, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of points in time where a collector gets frustrated with me, and I get frustrated because he needs coins. Uh, there's there's collections that I've been working on right now where. I haven't been able to add a coin to the set for six months to a year or even more because there just hasn't been anything available that's been sufficient for, for coins that the person needs. I think, I think a person has to understand that in most cases a great specialized collection is a 10 to 20 year commitment. Um, and I, for somebody that's an action junkie that, that needs to be buying coins on a fairly regular basis, I suggest that they pick a secondary collection. So they may be doing a set of Dahlonega Half Eagles or Liberty Seated Dollars or or Barber Quarters and Gem, something that's the coins are hard to find and they may go three, six, nine months, a year without buying anything. They should have a secondary set where coins are a little easier and less expensive to find where they can they can buy coins in the interim and get their coin fix. But Doug, I'm an impatient person and uh, you know where the coins are. So why don't we just throw money at the problem? Well, generally speaking, if you do that, you're going to make mistakes. Um, being impatient means you're going to wind up buying, you're going to cut corners and you'll, you'll make mistakes. I, I'm a big advocate of buying the right coin the first time. So instead of filling a hole with that 1857D in, in an all-mint state set, filling the hole with a pleasing XF45 that's the best you could find for, for a while, my feeling is just be patient. The right coin inevitably will come up. Um, as you become a better specialized collector and learn more about your series, you'll learn which 57D half eagles are probably going to be the right ones for you, whether it's the Eliasburg coin or the James Stack coin or the Dukes Creek coin or, or the Green Pond coin, whichever. You'll, you'll identify four or five coins that 
theoretically, if they become available, are the right coins. And when the right coin does become available, um, you have to be aggressive. It's funny. I've, I've had instances where people have been waiting for two or three years for a specific coin to come up for sale. And then it comes up for sale. And the first question is, do you think we can buy this cheap? Um, probably not. Um, there's probably a reason why you waited two or three years for a specific coin. And when the right coin comes up, if it's an important integral member of your set, you need to be prepared to, to be aggressive to buy the coin. Um, it could be another five years before the right coin comes up. There are, there, there's some sets where there, where many of the coins are relatively easy to find and you can search through auction records and see the availability of, of a specific coin. You can see with the 57D, if the coin you're looking for is an MS62 or better, you can see how many have become available in the last five or ten years and how many of those are coins that you would actually buy based on looking at the image. Um, if you're a collector that's super impatient, you probably need to pick a series that you can buy coins at a reasonably good velocity. Um, there are definitely series out there that, and any any good dealer will should tell a collector up front, you know, this is a pretty easy series to collect, or this is a really hard series, or it's an almost impossible series. And if, if the collector is just not willing to be patient, uh, it's inevitable that he or she will make mistakes and buy coins that, in retrospect, they probably shouldn't have bought. I'd say if you're impatient, you might want to stay away from mint state double eagles or maybe just 19th century gold in general. Yeah, I mean, if somebody wants to buy, if somebody is interested in doing a set of two and a half Indians, I mean, it's it's realistic to put together a gem set of two and a half Indians in a year or two. Um, a two and a half Liberty set is not a realistic set to put together in uncirculated in a year or two. Um, I have a collector that I've been working with for 30 years on a two-and-a-half lib set where he's actually now got every single two-and-a-half lib in mint state with the exception of one or two coins that are unknown and uncirculated. But that's been a, a, a very long, involved process, and he has been patient, and he's been willing to wait, in some cases, 15 or 20 years for the right coin to come up. What is the Mount Everest gold set to try to complete? For liver, for for 19th century U.S. gold, I would say the most complicated series is probably uh, Liberty Head Eagles. There, <clears throat> there are a lot of dates that are unknown or excessively rare and uncirculated, and there's a lot of dates where there may be only one or two uncirculated coins, but they're not as nice as some of the best AU-55s or 58s. Um, in the early gold series, I would obviously have to say that uh, Fathead 5s would be the rarest, the most difficult set because you've got the 1822, which will be an almost impossible coin to find. Uh, the 1829, the 28 over 7, the 1815, the 1825 over 4, uh, you've got 
half a dozen plus coins that are a million dollars plus if you can find them. Um, but those would I would have to say those would be the two most challenging series. Uh, Fives from 1795 to 1834, and ten lives from 1838 to 1907. Those would be something that to put together a world-class set um, would be not impossible, but certainly amongst the most challenging things in, in all of American numismatics. Makes what the Pokes did all the more impressive. I mean, you know, they had the financial resources to do it, but the caliber of coins they bought and the completeness of that collection is staggering. Um, they got so many breathtaking coins. You know, they got that 1822-5. You know, that's a coin that doesn't come around but once in a generation or so. And so many others as well. The Post had the advantage of, of, of being able to buy a few great coins in Garrett and Eliasburg early on. So they got – and they had David Akers early on as their their supplier. So they had – Opportunities to buy great coins with a great dealer guiding them. Um, had they made the decision to put together their collection starting in the 1990s or early 2000s, they could never have done it. But they they were actively buying coins as far back as 75, 76, through the early to mid-80s when great coins were, were more plentiful. And Dave Akers made some some pretty amazing decisions for them. Sold them some great coins, and um, the the results were arguably one of the greatest specialized collections of U.S. coins. Not arguably, unquestionably, one of the greatest collection specialized collections of U.S. gold coins ever assembled. Really, in a remarkable collection. And people have to remember, every coin the Pogues bought at auction had someone else who was interested in it. So they had to bid up for those coins, you know, and they had to have a game plan and go after the coins they wanted and make judgments on which coins to pass on. Uh, and, you know, there are other bidders that really wanted the same coins, and they had to contend with them as well. What the Pogues did, generally speaking, were buy, they bought coins, you know, one at a time, uh, occasionally... Uh, uh, a collection came available privately or at public auction where there might have been three, five, six coins that they that they targeted. Um, but they they did it intelligently and they did it over a thirty to forty year period. Um, and they did it. Brett Pogue became an unbelievably knowledgeable buyer where he was sharper in his area of expertise than all but a handful of dealers. So the, the, the combination of financial resources, expertise, patience, and a goal really worked well for them, and you could see it from the results. They, they had some great coins. You ever go head-to-head uh, -head against them in an auction for a coin that both of you wanted? Uh, I don't think I ever could outbid the Pogues. I mean, as a, as a dealer, if you outbid the Pogues, you probably realized that you paid too much. Um, and when in the early to mid '80s, when the Pogues were were probably strongest as a as a buyer, 
coins like that were were way out of my league. I mean, they they were coins that I would sit around in an auction to wait to see who would buy the Gem eighteen twenty half eagle, but it it would probably be more than my entire budget for the wholesale on one coin. So, uh, in later years, I bid against them on some coins um, and generally was unsuccessful, but I was glad to let them, by that point, buy the coins because, you know, I knew they were going to a good home. Well, Doug, I appreciate you taking an hour out of your day today to talk about the market and the way it is and uh, to talk with me about your process of building great sets for people. Um, I learned a lot. I always do. And I'm sure our listeners did as well. Thanks. My pleasure, Charles. I always like, I always enjoy talking to you. Thanks, Doug. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download every episode of the Coin Week podcast for free from our iTunes channel or stream it online on coinweek.com. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.